0: and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, David.
1: Thanks, David.
0: We are here to answer listener questions. And just now, right as I was talking, Tim had to hit mute really fast because he sneezed very aggressively without seeming like he knew it was coming.
2: it was like the timing. I don't think I've sneezed in two weeks and we start the show <laughs> and I've got to sneeze.
1: I, I really think heat. it's very unfair that David can see what we're doing. Tim and but I, we can't our see our what David's doing. Yeah. For our listeners, Tim and I have a not so secret conspiracy to try to do this via video. So we always turn our video on, but David doesn't. Uh, so he is veiled in mystery. We cannot see him, but he can see us.
0: Why is any of this weird to you? I mean, I don't, I don't understand why you don't know, veiled in mystery. At part? this point, I have it's been years and years of me proceeding this way, uh, guarding the veiledness of my mystery.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the man behind the curtain, David Kern. Yeah.
0: and if I start just revealing all of this, then you won't see how much time I spend on Twitter during the podcast.
1: <laughs> it just feels so good to be known, though. Now, see, now we already fair, know.
0: Fair, fair, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean when I say. Spending time on Twitter, I really just mean messaging other people about how crazy the things you're saying on the podcast are.
1: Oh, well, now um, I need to spend some time on Twitter. <laughs> hold on
0: well, before we dive into these questions that our uh, that our listeners sent What's in on Twitter page you- email. <laughs> yeah, Tim's old um.
1: Before we do that,
0: I just want to remind people that they can follow us on social media. Yeah, I don't really mean you're old; you're just old by like the standards of people who lived in 1720 in the like in like you know, dysentery-ridden London. Um, so you can follow along. It's comforting. Yeah, exactly. You made it longer than like most people who lived in 1380. So. What was I saying? Okay, Most so you can follow along. <laughs> you can follow along on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. You can join the conversation over on the Facebook group by searching Close Reads Discussion Group on the little Facebook search bar. And we you can click that join button and we will let you in. And I still don't know why Facebook hasn't made it easier to get to Facebook groups. I have to describe that whole thing. Just give us a URL. You can also, of course, send in questions or communicate with us via email. And that, that is CloseReadsPodcast at gmail.com. And I'm just now realizing after all these months, I should really write these instructions down so I can just read them instead of doing them from memory. And then I would stumble through them a lot less.
1: You do that oh. from memory? That's actually really impressive. Good job. Okay, well, then I'm not going to write
0: them down then. you know, get a compliment every now and then. Um.
2: <laughs> it's not an either or. Hey, you guys, listen, it's not an either or.
1: False dichotomy. Fair write
2: it down and say it from memory.
0: Well, that's true. That's true. I could write it down a whole bunch of times until it's just part of my muscle memory. Okay, so anyway, the point is you can communicate and be a part of this community in a lot of different ways. And of course, we also have our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Last week, I sent the f- first... Uh, first iteration of a new monthly feature that I'm going to be doing with some help from our friends here. uh, And that is our mailbag. So you can send in questions for that and we'll answer answer those. So that was fun. We had lots of questions about random things like kombucha and the Chicago Cubs and then also stuff about books. So we're going to have fun with that once a month or so. And uh, you you can sign up for that again at closereads.substack.com. Okay, let's talk about questions. Let's talk about the Odyssey. Um, we have several good questions, um, some of which those of you who are listening and participate in the conversation will have seen because you left your question on the same thread. but we also have a couple email questions that you won't have, and those will be surprises you know, that you won't have seen anyway. But the first question does come from the Facebook page, and it comes from Haley, and she asks a good you know a question that I think is a good place to start. she says. Now that I've read this translation, I am interested in reading others. Could you all make some recommendations of well-done translations? We have talked about this a bit on the show, but I wanted to give you guys the floor to you know, offer up maybe your favorite or some other ones that we haven't talked about. Tim, do you have what would you recommend for that?
2: I really like Lattimore. Uh, he's the, the translation that I've read the most, and I really enjoy it. I, I think what, it might be. What do you fun. like about it? It's crackling. I mean, it gets it gets the. Um, to me, it conveys the action really vividly. I know it's not the Iliad. Um, the, the Odyssey is not as action-packed as the Iliad, but still, same author. Which, by the way, we never even he like, talked about that, did we? Like, we barely glanced over that. Like, whether or not Homer is a single person or multiple people. And I take strange delight that we didn't even talk about that. Amen. Like, who really? I mean, it's interesting <laughs> for six minutes, and then talk about the book. Um. So I'd say Lattimore. It, it really conveys the action well for me.
1: Hi, hey, what about you, Same. Lattimore is you no. Know, I love Lattimore, uh, and his is probably the standard translation amongst. Conservative Homeric scholar. So, if you're going to go to uh, college, most of and read it in English, you're probably going to read Lattimore. Um, my personal favorite is Fitzgerald. I love Fitzgerald. It's a very, very poetic, very descriptive, very. Flowing kind of translation, and that's the one that I read the most, and that's the one that I listen to the most, because mm. uh, our listeners know I I love to listen to Audible, especially with the epics, uh, because it was a I mean it was originally an, a, a poem orally recited at religious festivals. At least that's the existing theory. It's probably the best theory that we have right now where it came from. So it was intended to be listened to. So I like to listen to it. My favorite translation for listening is by far Fitzgerald. And I've listened to several and for reading too. But Lattimore is probably the one that you're going to encounter the most. It's going to be quoted the most if you're reading an article that's um, referencing it. Uh, so I would, I would say probably those are my my two go-tos.
0: So are you either of you familiar with uh, Peter Green... Yes, because he has a brand new Odyssey as well that also came out in 2018, and then he did an Iliad translation, which is amazing. I have not read much of the Odyssey mm-hmm. translation, but I know Matt Bianco is a fan of it, and his Iliad really is really is great. And um, so, if you're looking for you know another n- another newer take on the Odyssey that is perhaps a little bit different than where Emily Wilson is going, Peter Green's is his his way with language and is is really interesting. Have you read any of his? Heidi,
1: no, I bought it when it came out because um, I just kind of keep track of that stuff. So it's sitting on my shelf in all of its glory, but I haven't even cracked it open. So thank you for reminding me about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, again, I don't know it well, but it's the one that I'm most excited to check out because his Iliad really is. I I like the word crackling for 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 translate for writing in general, uh, but <laughs> I you know his Iliad I thought was a pretty crackling translation of the Iliad. Um, One of these days, we'll do the Iliad here on the podcast, and then we could consider um, doing maybe Peter Green's or Fitzgerald or something like that for the Iliad. Um, Okay, let's talk about the next question. This is from Claire. So hospitality is a huge theme in this book, and the rules of hospitality have been discussed. So why then is the Cyclops seen as a bad host and the men as victims? I mean, Odysseus didn't follow the rules. He didn't go to someone who was his equal. He certainly wasn't invited in. I don't think the men deserved to die, but they did intrude upon his cave uninvited. Odysseus didn't even do any recon to see what kind of man was living there before he came in. It was a foreign land, so was it expected that the people who lived there would follow the same rules or of hospitality that the Greeks did? Okay, so I think this is a fascinating question. I think it's a really um. Given all the things we've been talking about, I think that's that's a great question. Um, Tim, I asked you the last one first, so we'll ask Heidi to give her response to this one first.
1: Sure. So as a commenter on the page said, uh, that Wilson, Emily Wilson, does indeed agree with this take. So there are multiple takes on this particular issue i go with the historical take which is that odysseus did indeed follow the rules which is he he lands on the shore uh and he goes to the first place that he can encounter where there are people There's somebody living, and he presents himself in his case and asks for help. And at that case, then the host would be obligated to help him, either to take him in himself or to send him to the proper place, which is exactly what happens when he goes to the Phaeacians when he sees that young girl who turns out to be Athena in disguise um, and asks her for help. And then she leads him to the palace, which is where he belongs. Uh, So I, I do go with the take that Odysseus did indeed follow the correct rules of the guest host relationship in a foreign land. And then, then polyphemus was the one who violated it. But like I said, Emily Wilson uh, tends to have more of that um, uh, other perspective that, that are, that Claire mentions.
0: So
2: Tim, that's a great answer. I, I, don't, I can't expand or improve upon that, David.
0: You don't want to argue with her. Come on, Tim, argue with her.
2: No, I I would if there was a substance to argue over.
0: If there was a substance to argue over, if all you right, had David's you challenge
1: said. to you. Maybe you want to argue with me if you can find a substance. Oh, no, I don't know, to you know what you said. I was looking at Twitter. <laughs> Perfect. That was a crackling answer. It's <laughs> a crackling?
0: Someone. Uh, we really skin. need someone to go on the on the on uh, iTunes and Stitcher and whatnot and just review the podcast like a whole bunch of times, saying this is a crackling podcast. <laughs> um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Hey,
2: I think at the Circe conference, I wonder if we could get some t shirts printed up that say, I'm a Cyclops sympathizer (laughs) or something like that.
1: Me
0: and Polyphemus. You know? Yeah. Two
1: kinds of people in the world. Polyphemus and those who put people in categories and those who do not.
0: So, (laughs) Um, So you say it's the historical take, though, Heidi. I Can do you? say
2: that. Like the traditional take you mean, is that what yeah, you mean? The the that's yeah, that's the
0: most commonly accepted take. I mean, so are you suggesting that this is just that? I mean, that this class this question that Claire is asking is like if this is Emily Wilson probably planted this question?
1: Well, I don't think it's just Emily Wilson. It's a very modern take to deconstruct uh, heroes of a story, right? And and as many as we've talked about many times on the podcast and as uh, Many of the questions reveal Odysseus is even within the world of the story a very ambiguous character, and throughout history he's been questioned. That's not new, uh, for different reasons, which was another one of the questions uh, on the Q and A thread. Um, and so he, but it's a very modern take. What is a modern take on this particular book? On Book Nine is. Uh, the idea of imperialism, that Odysseus somehow represents a uh, Greek imperialism coming to the native land and, um, and, and upsetting the natural order. Like he is a disruptive influence on this land, which is doing perfectly fine without him. And along he comes with his Greek civilization and tries to impose oh, it. Okay, okay. And then we can't and we can't judge him for that. So that is a modern take. But throughout history, Odysseus has been judged for many, other reasons but that one's new
0: yeah but that's not that's not what this question is about well that's saying- what
1: Well, but you referenced i'm saying that but your question to me a few minutes ago is about wilson and so that's that's wilson's take is that he represents modern greek or the modern take on greek imperialism the question had a lot more to do with did he violate within the world the story the guest host relationship and um and so there i would say I don't think that he did. Yeah,
0: but okay. So you used the word deconstruct a second ago, which is like a poison word, right? (laughs) Um, On this podcast, anyway. So, but like to to ask the question of whether he went into the cave uninvited, like and he wasn't, he was intruding in ways that he maybe he shouldn't have, or he should have done recon, or, or to suggest that he made a mistake in a scene like this isn't to deconstruct him, is it?
1: Well, no. That's that's probably fair. I was using the word more in terms of your earlier question about Wilson's idea in the introduction. I don't think the question, I don't think Claire's question is to deconstruct. Her question is, are you, what, did he violate the guest host relationship within the world of story? And I think that's a fair question. Mm -hmm. Um, And and,
2: in Heidi, you're painting like the larger kind of critical inquiry behind not behind that particular question, but that kind of like scholars have talked about um, how to interpret this particular episode. You're kind of given the lay of the land. This particular episode might kind of lean toward one might lean toward um, a more deconstructionist bent, but I, I suspect probably unwittingly it's more just a reading of the text. What is the name? What's the name of the person asking the question, David? Claire.
1: Yeah, no, Claire's question is a good question. Did he violate yeah. the guest host relationship within the world of the story? Um, and he, I think that this speech on lines two, it's on page 246 and 247, um, and he kind of goes through his approach to Polyphemus, which includes knocking on the door, seeing if he would give him gifts, which was common for a a host to give gifts, help him on his way, take him in for the night. So he lays out what he's going to say to Polyphemus and then he actually does it. And so my contention is he doesn't violate the guest-host relationship.
0: I I think her point is interesting. Like in a classroom in particular, it would be really interesting to... um... To to talk about the idea of polyphemus, you know, he she says he didn't go to someone who was his equal, and he wasn't invited in. So does that impact you know the rules of the of the whole thing? Um, and that would be an interesting thing to right. talk about. Like, does he break those particular rules? For
2: sure, for sure, it'd be a great classroom starter.
0: Um, okay, so here's one from Esther. This I want to turn to you, Tim, on this one first. Everyone, quote, everyone, she says Esther, talks about how diverse the cultures of ancient Greece were and how they weren't truly a unified group with Sparta and Athens held up as prime examples of extreme opposite city-states. Is the Odyssey at home more in some of those cultures than others? Or are the differences less significant in the time period when Odysseus makes his journey? Or is the diversity overplayed by the nebulous everyone out there who is talking about this? what do you think about that tim so given the, oh, the historical context of of greek history with the city-states and you know kind of they not being the same and having very different uh ways of thinking and things they valued and things like that how does that impact this story i i, I wanna
2: i want to say that i want to kind of define the word diversity among the greek city-states um because i think that the diversity among the greek city-states in the homeric era (coughs) the level of diversity there is probably i don't know how to compare it quite to the kind of diversity of you know the contemporary globalized world or even like the world before globalization was as powerful as it is right now my sense is that the greek city-states yes they were diverse in that they were not all like Athens. Clearly Sparta is like the biggest, one of the biggest evidences of that. But I kind of think Sparta and Athens as being the two poles and within those two poles or between those two poles, most of the city States kind of lay, I don't know how you would say it, like ideologically between those two poles. um, So I'm trying to push back a little bit on the level of diversity between the Greek city-states. And and part of the reason I push back on that is because when Aristotle writes his politics, he's gathering constitutions from various Greek city-states. And he's kind of writing about what works in these constitutions, what's good, what's bad about these constitutions. You know, he's heralding the things that he thinks make for a great constitution. But kind of underlying that is the fact that look at all these Greek city-states that have written legal um, constitutions. This is remarkable. And it's a great commonality. And, again, I don't want to, like, just say, and thus they were all the same. They obviously (laughs) weren't. The constitutions are really different. But – I think at least by the time of Aristotle, there is a commonality among those city-states that I suspect Homeric history is not my strength, but I suspect that that the commonality between the Greek city-states, even in Homer's time, um, was not the sort of diversity that we would see between, let's say, um, Asia in 1900 and spain in 1900 you know what i mean like this is a this is a lower level of diversity mm. man that was a long prologue <laughs> <laughs> that was a long prologue and i almost want to give it as my answer i think i'm going to give that as
0: my answer hi did you want to add anything to that
1: no i think that's very well said i mean we have to think about think of the big cities in the united states right la and new york and chicago like in houston that they're they each have their own character but they're all uh, very obviously, American cities from the outside, in a thousand years, they're going to look back and talk about america um and uh, and even though those individual cities all have their own unique character and probably seem very, very different to Americans, you know in the context of history, they're all they're they were very much undergirded by the same ideological beliefs and cultural connections and all those kinds of things. So I think that that's uh, and another thing just to point out about Homer's time is that there's we don't I mean this this is what's often called or at least that the time he's writing about is often called the Greek Dark Ages. Although I really don't like that term, but what it means is that they didn't have a lot of written records. What we know about Homer's time, a lot of it comes from Homer and from archeological evidence, not from like this rich literary uh, um, record that we might have. Uh, so, so we're inferring a lot from what we know. We know a lot more about Sparta and Athens in the later, uh, uh, which was hundreds of years after Homer. Um, and so uh, there's, you know, we're, we're piecing things together about that particular time period from now, from our perspective.
0: Mm. Um, okay, let's move on because again, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the nature of the Q and A. That might
2: be, that might, I just want to say, um, we've shouted out to Esther before as one of our, you know, like most decorated listeners. And that, that was a really great question. Mm -hmm. That was an
1: erudite question.
0: Tim Dolan out compliments like the word erudite. Um, (laughs) that's what people come to this podcast for.
1: Crackling
0: erudition. (laughs) It's
1: a
2: crackling erudite question. (laughs) That's their way to go.
0: Okay, so here's a question. Excuse me. Here's a question from Katie. (laughs) She says this is not a deep question, but one that's been bugging her. Uh, Heidi, why is it called the Odyssey and not the Odyssead?
1: I have no idea. That's a really good question. Is it another erudite question? Probably, and it probably has something to do with Greek, which I don't know. I really wish I did.
0: Tim, do you?
2: No, I don't. I want to kind of follow up with that question. Does our word Odyssey, you know, like a a travel, a trial, does it come from Odysseus? And this, we like slap the name of the Odyssey onto this book, or does this book take its name directly from Odysseus and just kind of play with the word or something like that? That's not a terribly clear question. That was not a crackling erudite question that I just (laughs) asked. i don't know the answer to katie to katie's question
0: i'm googling the word odyssead and i really don't even see anything i mean there's like an international google Odyssean saying festival did you mean
2: odysseus did, <laughs> did you, you mean, mean the odyssey, the odyssey?
0: <laughs> yeah like it looks like there's a an, there's an keyboard
2: do you want to change contested. your browser to Attic greek
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's interesting so I, we are of no help on this question katie sorry um, Okay, here's a different Katie's question. How much weight do you think we can give to author intent in Homer? Even when discussing the original Greek, it seems to me that we receive that document through multiple scribes and copyists who may have made errors. At the end of the day, I know it doesn't matter and the text is the text, but do you think that we as modern readers treat quote the text and quote as maybe more sacred than it originally was? Heidi, just first and then I'll give Tim.
1: What book is it? But oh man, I I read this question. I meant to look up this reference I'm about to say. So maybe some of our listeners will know, or maybe one of you two will know. Um there's there's some book, it might be Eva Braun, I can't remember. But anyway, there's a book that talks about um like Homer fundamentalists and how they would eat um, there there's like a time in Greek history uh when they ate exactly the same foods that they ate in the odyssey and they would, so there's a, there's a scene in the Iliad uh, in which I think it's in the Iliad in which Odysseus and Agamemnon or anyway, some, some of the heroes are drinking wine and eating onions. And so for a long time, that's people were like Homer fundamentalists and they would eat onions with their wine because Homer told them to do it. And um, we all have a good laugh about that now because that's silly, but, When you have a book that feels like a sacred text, you want to follow it in all of its particulars. Uh, And so this this is kind of the uh, the fundamental text of the ancient world. Uh, So um, in terms of how much weight to give to author intent, as Tim hinted at earlier, which we haven't gotten into because I'm with him, I'm, I'm... Fascinated for about six minutes. There is a lot of speculation on whether Homer is a real person, uh, whether it was this was a book written by one author, or whether it was pieced together over the centuries, and um, this there are the same questions about about the Odyssey that many uh, biblical scholars have about the the ancient text of the Bible or the Quran or whatever. Um, that there's these these old texts. We're not exactly sure how we got them. And it is an interesting question to go back and try to piece that together and figure it out. But I am with Katie that in the end, what matters is what we do have and we approach it within the world that it presents.
2: Can I ask a follow up question? This is for both of you guys. Um, Because I think I might answer that a little bit differently, Heidi. So my question is Should we give less? how do I say this? Should the bar for authorial intent for the Odyssey or for the Iliad being as old as they are, should we read a little bit less for authorial intent those books as compared to, let's say, a great 21st century novel or even something like, um, War and Peace, which is written early 1800s. Because oh, we, are in, we, we are, like, chronologically speaking, we are just in closer proximity to Tolstoy than we are to Homer.
1: So what would be, like, what's the question behind your question? Like, um, what would be the pros and cons of each of those ways of reading?
2: I think, I think because Homer is so far away because he spoke a language that we no longer speak because he lived in a world that we, that is really unfamiliar to us as much as like um, farming habits might still kind of like, we might still be familiar with some farming habits of the ancient Greek world or certain aspects of family life from ancient Greek world. It is a different, different world that they inhabited. And thus, we're not really looking at Homer as a peer or even as, you know, a grandfather. He's, he's more of a Martian. Yeah, I, I don't want exactly. to make too much out of it, but he's more, he's more of a Martian. He's just really strange to us. And so if we read him for authorial intent, we could, it's, it, for me, I, let me stop. I think reading for authorial intent is a good principle of reading. And it's one of the principles that we just kind of practice here at close reads almost without articulating. However, um, I don't want to be foolish and dogged about it. I want to admit that there are certain books that are so strange to us and just because they're in our everyday curriculum and public schools we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking they are not as strange as they really are and thus it makes me say of homer maybe the idea of authorial intent needs to be seasoned with real earnest historical inquiry alongside of authorial intent
1: I totally agree because I think with with ancient authors I, I get what you're saying now with with ancient authors the trouble with trying to speak only from the perspective of art of authorial intent is that that quickly devolves into textual criticism right than to trying to figure out that that's that branch of scholarship that is was Homer a real person what makes book nine different from book three could it have been you know there's there's these, all these differences right. along the way that then you start to figure out. The, the book starts to then kind of unravel, um, not because it can't hold its own, but because we're not reading the book anymore. We're just looking at the textual criticism to try to defend it or undermine it, right? So I agree with you completely that the book, as it has come down to us over the centuries, is universally accepted as the book. Let's just take it on its own terms. This is the book we have. What Homer was trying to say, you know, that's the same kind of thing that we get with Shakespeare all the time. Was Shakespeare a conservative? Was Shakespeare a Christian? Was Shakespeare this or that? If you start talking like that with Homer and trying to figure out what he's trying to say, it's very easy to lose the complexity and the humanity of these great books. And so I say focus on that. That's the most important thing to do.
2: There's a, um, so I'm sure readers know, and I'm sure you guys know, like the Bible is probably the book that was kind of, um, held up to this sort of, sort of critical textual scrutiny before the Homer was because of its importance in the Western world. And one of the kind of modes that Heidi's been talking about of reading the Bible would be it it doesn't just have multiple authors meaning the author of the book of first samuel and the author of second chronicles are different authors that everyone acknowledges but within those books like especially a book like um genesis or deuteronomy there are multiple authors and there are multiple kind of like competing um agendas within these authors And then these different texts with these different agendas kind of got pasted together. And you can look for the seams and you can see where kind of like the tone changes and the agenda of the text changes. Now, I don't want to just dismiss that as um, a mode of trying to understand the Bible. And I actually think at times there's great merit to that. But I also think during its heyday, it was so overblown that you could miss the intent of the author and maybe even the wisdom of the author, because you're looking to find seams where the author that that would provide evidence that the author is actually two authors. So an example of this would be um, in the book of Proverbs, there are two Proverbs back to back. And I'm going to, I'm going to, my memory is going to butcher this, but, the first of them says something like, In many counselors is great wisdom. And then the very next proverb is, uh, In many counselors lies great folly. So, what it looks like is that these two proverbs placed right next to each other just openly contradict each other. And so, if you're a reader, you can read that and say, Ah, there's a seam. Right between those two proverbs, and these two proverbs were probably written by two different people, and thus they are like at war with each other. They're and and our job as textual critics is to kind of highlight these seams and say, "Look, we found two different authors side by side." Okay, now that may be true, because like, I, I I think it's plausible to say Solomon might have collected proverbs as well as like written his own, but it overlooks the it overlooks the fact that man maybe these two proverbs placed in juxtaposition to each other was actually the role, was actually the result of either a really intelligent a really wise insight into the benefits and demerits of having many counselors you're like maybe there's actually a great wisdom in putting these two proverbs next to each other but you miss that wisdom if you're just looking for competing or rival or multiple authors within the text
1: right
0: should we move on amen
1: <laughs> i know right
0: Okay. Hey, before we go to the rest of the questions for this episode, I want to say a quick word from our sponsor. We all know we live in a complex world, yet so often we oversimplify critical issues about humanity, culture, and ultimate reality. We're bombarded with sound bites, biased research, and fragmented narratives, and so we may wonder how even to begin thinking about today's issues and how to live a worthy life in the face of them. But what if there were a way to get clarity about the causes of our problems and the many solutions proposed to them? What if there were a way to understand people, culture, and yourself at a deeper level so that you could live with purpose, integrity, and wisdom? At Gutenberg College, there is. Gutenberg College in Eugene, Oregon offers a unique BA in liberal arts grounded in the great books and a biblical worldview. Authors like Plato, Einstein, and St. Augustine pen the works that have shaped the world as we know it, and theirs are just a few of the deep voices Gutenberg students hear as they join a conversation that has continued for thousands of years. When you understand the past, you can thrive in the present and navigate the future. You can know how to care for others, serve with confidence in your vocation, and stay true to what matters most. To find out more about how a Gutenberg education can help you cultivate wisdom that will serve you for a lifetime, head over to gutenberg.edu slash preview. And that's G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G dot E-D-U slash preview. Thanks to Gutenberg for uh, sponsoring the podcast.
2: I heard you know good things about that place.
0: Yeah, you, you, know, you might know a little <laughs> thing or two about it. You may know how to get there, in fact.
2: I, I can't tell you how many... Uh close reads episodes were recorded from the office of Gutenberg College in Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> yeah, you so know, for, many. for those
0: of you who are new to the podcast, Tim used to be a professor at uh, at Gutenberg. For how long how long was that, Tim? How long were you there?
2: Ten years. Either nine years or ten years. Actually, I think it was nine. A whole tenth of your life. A whole (laughs) tenth.
0: All right, let's talk about
1: similar questions.
2: Hey, when did I become old on this podcast? He says, his voice crackling like an octogenarian. (laughs) Hey, when did I become the old one? (laughs)
0: Um, Hey, here's an interesting question from Jonathan. (laughs) In the Iliad, Iris is used exclusively as the herald or messenger of the gods and there's not really any mention of Hermes, but in the Odyssey that role is reversed. There's no mention of Iris, it seems. Any particular reason for this? Do either of you know anything about this?
1: I I have I do, I cannot speak definitively on it, but I know I know that it is one of the arguments for the multiple Homer. Um Oh, interpretation. That there's yes. different
0: people writing it.
1: Yes, different messengers, different gods uh, used in different ways instead of in continuity. Now I believe in one Homer. So, but that is one of the arguments that's used for that. So I, I think that's a detail that uh, that's um like a very, very precise close reading of the text to have noticed that. Scholars mm. notice that and comment on it and write about it. So good mm. job.
0: So Tim mentioned that he was kind of glad that we didn't even um that we didn't talk about it. But just briefly to summarize, do either of you know? Can can you offer up some of the theories? I mean, do people think that it was like, you know, Francis Bacon, Bacon and Edward De Vere who wrote, <laughs> wrote, wrote, wrote the homework of Homer or Queen Elizabeth or Christopher Marlowe or do do like I'm obviously referencing the uh, silly right. Shakespeare? What I believe is a silly theory on Shakespeare, right. um. Do we have names that people put out there that could have been Homer? The way we do no. with Shakespeare, or is it more the idea of it doesn't make sense? There's, too, there's it was it was you know an oral tradition and all that, and so it just there probably had to be multiple people. Is it more like that?
1: Yes, yes, and kind of going from the idea that scholarship seems to show, and I think rightly so, that these were oral tales co- compiled uh, in written form from old oral tales, from a much earlier oral tradition. And so the idea is that Homer was either a person who compiled these, he didn't really make it up, um, or there is no Homer, uh, that it was, uh, Homer was, got slapped on, he's a legend, but really it's just um, that along the way, bards and scribes or whatever kind of Hold these things together, these mm-hmm. old, these stories together that were recited at these religious festivals a couple times a year and wrote them down on papyrus somewhere along the way and then and then put the name Homer on it. And that's what we have. And there is, uh, you know, things like what, what is it? Jonathan who posted that, who, who pointed mm-hmm. out, um, things that there's, either contradictions or different gods are used in different ways or different people are or whatever. So uh, the idea is that it it reads more like a patchwork of stories rather than one long continuous one if you're looking at it very closely in the Greek. Mm -hmm. That's the basic theory. But could
0: it have been Edward de Vere, the Duke of Oxford? I mean, that's
1: what my theory, I I absolutely think, (laughs) or probably a woman actually, now that I'm thinking about it.
0: Well, I did mention Queen Elizabeth.
1: Yep. So, uh, yes. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um... I love the Edward De Vere theory with Shakespeare. I love how like nobody thought of it, and then 300 years after Shakespeare died, some, all of a sudden Edward De Vere, Earl of Oxford, gets this new life. Like, can you imagine that guy when he's alive? And like, if he found out 300 years later that all of a sudden everyone's going to think he was the greatest writer ever to write, write in English, right? How does that happen? Like, I know the fates are weird. Um,
1: well, but a lot of it, a lot of it, with the Shakespeare theory and with the Homer theory, is there's no way somebody was this brilliant,
0: right? Like a yeah. lot
1: of it is that. Really at heart, it's there's no the way the lack of somebody, faith in humanity. Yes, and that's why I continue <laughs> to hold up the torch and believe in the one Homer and that Shakespeare was Shakespeare and those middle class and not you know like all those those kinds of things. This there are some extraordinary people who have lived in the world and i think homer was oh, there's no him. way
0: shakespeare was a middle class yeah. in my opinion <laughs> that's like the best that's the best yeah. defense for, for him not having been like some earl or a queen or something um,
1: yeah
0: i agree the the upper class wouldn't have known enough of the stuff like the slang and all the stuff that he was writing um okay esther asks why are athena's eyes gray and why is that important enough to emphasize every time she enters the tale kim it's
2: It's it's a trope, right? Gray eye Athena, in and the trope or the repeated phrase, gray eye Athena, does not show up with the sort of consistency in this translation that it does in some other more traditional translations. Heidi, I think you talked about either like the first or the second episode.
1: Yeah, we talked about that. The third episode, Mm -hmm. we
2: talked about how we missed those Mm -hmm. repeated refrains. So. I think that the purpose behind repeating gray-eyed Athena, especially in other translations, is um, it's part of the kind of Homeric diction, is uh, he repeats himself almost as a time marker within this very long oral tale. Now, the significance of Athena's eyes being gray, I got a punt on that one. Maybe you guys know.
1: No, they're all, I mean... So Hector, Hector breaker of horses and, the, and, but that's obvious because that's part of being a, a hero, right? You you break these horses and you, um, wear armor or whatever it is. So some of them really have a rhyme or reason. And some of them are just, the story is that Athena was gray eyed. And so that, that goes in there to be, to identify her, um, Another one that's like that is Thetis from the Iliad, uh, Achilles' mother, and she has glistening feet. That's kind of random, but that's the way she's identified over and over and over again in the Iliad, Thetis with her glistening feet. So some of them really are just, I don't know if um, there's other, that they're tied to other myths, Um, but... I've never read anything saying that gray was associated with wisdom or whatever. It's more just an identifier.
0: So like
1: um, the man of mystery, David Kern.
2: <laughs> I was just going to say, what, what do you guys think your monikers would be if Homer was writing about you?
1: Well, David's would be man of mystery,
2: dark screen, man of mystery or minute or, or the, like, like, the shadow podcaster because in David's studio it's well, Emily all Wilson
1: would use murky, both so
2: yeah she would she would it's not an either or I've got so, to remember that lesson it's not an either or that's right
1: gosh stop being so western <laughs> so
0: the, so back it's to the original a question, though, Tim. the the actual word um, that is often translated as gray eyed I I think my understanding is that it's probably more literally should be translated bright eyed. Like more literally, huh. but it's a word that apparently has shares the same root word as the word owl. Like the Greek word oh. for an owl. Well, there you oh. go. So the the gray eyed thing is meant to represent the connection to owls. Supposedly, I don't. I've you know, I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm not a Greek scholar, scholar and I, I don't speak it at all but that, that's my understanding is that it's, there's some connection to the owl it's like more literally it should be bright-eyed which is the concept of perception but then there it, the language shifts and it becomes more of the metaphor and so it gets tied to the concept of an owl and so the gray gets played in there in translation and things like that like they probably didn't that's think of it as right. gray-eyed in the
1: greek because, times well Fitzgerald often translates there as owl-eyed Athena, bright-eyed wow. Athena, gray-eyed Athena. So I'm 100% sure you're right. I love that. I've never, I've never heard that before. I totally
0: just made that up. So fun. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't make it yeah. up. <laughs> okay. Hey, Heidi, here's a question for you. This was an in, Um And Tim, obviously you can jump in on this, but I'm asking Heidi first. Um, which sounded a lot more like what I would say to my children than my fellow podcasters. <laughs> Um, I like
1: that. You just you just take the lead, own it. Okay, so I'm Elizabeth
0: ready. writes this. It's a you just bear with me for a second because she wrote a, a paragraph. I'm completely fascinated. She says with this idea you have raised that there is really only one true story, which we all know as humans um let's see which we all know as humans of the fall from grace turmoil and redemption how we get to redemption seems to be the big issue with which we need to wrestle and i'm really curious about how civilizations besides christian nations find those paths to redemption and how similar they are to Christianity. In your discussion of Odysseus and Penelope in books 18 and 19, you talked about how husband and wife seem to mirror each other. It seemed to me in those chapters, however, that there was also a strong tension between them. For Odysseus, a duty to keep his identity hidden and, and the desire to reveal himself to his wife. And for Penelope, a duty to be the hostess to the suitors and not give away anything to someone who could be a stranger. And then her also her desire to, her desire to demand who he was because he might be her husband or know something about him. And then we see that throughout the Odyssey where each of these characters have to balance duty and desire towards one another. So this reminded Elizabeth, she said, so Elizabeth says, this reminded me of Heidi's point when we were reading Remains of the Day, that holding this duty and desire dichotomy in a marriage is a path to redemption. So could it be that this marriage itself is what ultimately enables the redemption of Odysseus's kingdom? And if so, how would you compare or contrast with the point you made when discussing the Christian ethic when we were talking about Remains of the Day? Did you get all that?
1: I Who is this girl? I love her. I want to be her friend. Her name Um, is
0: Elizabeth, and she emailed me. She said she's not on social media, so you don't know us.
1: Please forward me her email. I love this question. yeah, I the connection that she's bringing, that Elizabeth is bringing up between um, the pathway to redemption throughout all cultures, which is pretty much in every culture, Eastern, Western, ancient, modern, one thing, and I'll say that in a minute. Um, and the connection between duty and desire is really important and really, really, really insightful, Elizabeth, uh, because uh, and and. Specifically, I think marriage is the relationship in which this plays out the very most in our lives. <laughs> but that one way from chaos to order, the one way from the fall to redemption in every culture, whether Christian or not, uh, is is through death and resurrection, always. Like in every great story, the hero or heroine or group of people has to somehow Die sacrifice themselves, and when I say "die," um, I mean that in a metaphorical sense as well as in a literal sense. Sometimes it's a literal death. Um, sometimes it's a metaphorical death. Um, but there's some kind of death, and then a coming back alive, a resurrection from the dead. Uh, and, and that is, that's why I think, and I don't want to speak for Tim uh, or for you, David, but I will take a stand that that is the story. That's the story, the T H E the story of the world, which is there is a fall, and that there somehow has to be a making right, a coming back together again, and that somehow instinctively in our heart of hearts, as the Bible says, eternity is in our hearts, we know that that comes through the through love and death coming together. When someone dies for the sake of another, uh, greater love hath no man than this, than he who lays down his life for his friend. So. In the Odyssey, we see uh, Odysseus go through trial after trial after trial uh, and just experience a metaphorical death before he can come back home and be brought back to life. Um, and, and, and in his sacrificial death, then he, he, he brings order and redemption back to the kingdom. And I think it's really important that Odysseus is married because we see that also in his relationship with Penelope, her metaphorical death, her many, many years of waiting, of laying down her life, of being unwilling to re- accept another husband, her faithfulness, her prudence, then she is, that's, that's her dying beyond herself and then bring, being brought back to life through that passageway of, of death and love united together and coming back to life. It's a great human mystery, which is why I think it is the story that's explored in every story. Hmm.
0: Tim, I see you nodding. You're muted. You're muted, Tim. <laughs> I just saw his mouth moving. Yeah.
2: Sarah, Jane and I, Sarah Jane and I were having a similar kind of conversation um, at the conclusion of Othello. We did the Q and a session yesterday. And something very similar came up. I agree with Heidi. I, I, on the other hand, am a little bit obsessed with, Oh gosh, am I going to go, am I going to like launch out on this, this like meandering theory that I've been trying to, that I've been like ruminating on for the last 15 years no, I'm not okay, going just to. Just lean do, back. I'm not going to do close it. Close your eyes. I'm not going to do it. And launch away. No, I
0: no, I think push off, push out to sea.
2: So let me start by um saying I I do a lot of writing work with um missions organizations like missionaries. They they hardly are called missionaries anymore, but I frequently mm-hmm. um have conversations with these people who have been kind of out in, you know, the field and some of the stories they tell are so stunning. They're so stunning. One story that I heard was about a group of um young converts and they were all men and they were all very very serious about their faith and they were all beating their wives and the the man who was working with them kind of found out about it and he was shocked like how in the world cuz he couldn't he couldn't put these two things next to each other like how could they be in all appearances really genuine about their faith and at the same time beating their wives and so he began to talk to him about it and the reply was well how why would your wife like do anything that you said without you without force. And so the man has to kind of like talk these men through like the whole biblical teaching, but it was strange to him and it's probably really strange to us to hear this story because it seems like the moment that you would kind of like understood the gospel, that sort of thing would stop immediately. But it it doesn't stop. So so part of what I kind of wrestle with when we talk about the one story is how strange the one story of the gospel often is, and the kind of demands that are so, in some ways, counter to what seems to make sense. Like the these men who are hitting their wives, it made all the sense in the world to them to keep doing that. Because how else would you get an audience if you didn't have kind of like potential of force accompanying your words does that make any sort of sense so i so I, i i have been kind of wrestling with just how clear and um I don't know quite I did push out and I don't quite know how to and I struggle with the notion of kind of like our our noetic apparatuses to understand and comprehend the one story in a way that immediately makes sense. I think it is a labor to understand that story and it's rife with not just like minor misunderstandings, it's rife with hazards to our understanding because our nature in some way craves that one story and our nature in some ways it is the most bewildering, strange thing we've ever heard in our lives. You know, like the beginning of John 1 seems to like, articulate both those things. The same, excuse me, not, yes, John, not first John, but the first chapter of John um, talks about Jesus as this, the thing that the world craves, the light of the world and the world knows him not. It seemed to contain both of those things. Mm. Um, This is not in any way to undermine this notion that there is one story. It's just coming to an understanding of that story is is half the story itself.
1: Mm. Well, and I I also think that's what you know, the ancients made a distinction between mythos and logos, um, logos being propositional truth, the kind of truth that you can say in a statement, right? That, uh, Christ came to the world there to die and rise again and save the world. That's, that's the logos, right? Like that's, that's, that is the truth. That is the story. But there's also a mythos to the story. It's a story. So and and there's a mystery to it. And mythos means myth or story. And so, because as you've pointed out, Tim, it's everything we desire and at the same time, everything we resist. Right? That's a mystery. That's not something you we can say that, but the the propositional statement that i just said that's everything we desire and everything we resist that actually doesn't capture the emotion that Mm. we feel Um, in kind of going encountering that story yeah right and looking at a man who beats his wife that that's the man that christ died for right and that that man can truly love god and still commit such a grievous sin And both of those things are true. That's a very great mystery.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's not something that we can um, fully enter into without a story. A story is a container for the mystery, right? And so that's um, an exploration of it. And I think that's why I remain, in some ways, everything we're talking about now is a lot of the reason why I am such a staunch defender of the story as the story. Not the story as filtered through modern sensibilities or particular paradigm, but because the Odyssey is an encountering of the mystery of the one story, right? So to look at these, to look at all the mysteries of the story and then try to kind of tame it through understanding it only through our own time, um, instead of entering into it and letting it kind of overwhelm us and be hard to take. That's a big. That's that's a humble posture towards a story because when we do that, when we let a story be hard to take, when we let a story be what it is, be the mystery that it is, we're also entering into the one story that it's trying to get to, right? And we're letting it be a pathway to the gospel, mm. and I, I I think that's really important, um, especially the greater the story like the Odyssey or the Iliad or Hamlet. Um, the, the better the story, the greater the story, um, the more bottomless the story, the more we need to let it overwhelm us instead of trying to kind of bring it under our control.
2: I, I think part of the reason that these communities like Close Reads or Healthy Churches um, or even colleges like Gutenberg, I think part of the reason that they are so vital is because the man, in the story I told when he was talking to these men who were trying to be faithful and they were also hitting their wives. Um, he, he came from a community that said, no, this is the way that the text this is the meaning, this is what it, it, the text should mean. And there's a community that goes along with these books or there are communities that go along with these books that seek to, in some ways, preserve kind of like a, a true understanding or a real understanding of those books. And sometimes those communities can kind of just fall into, like we were talking about a second ago, um, a fundamentalism, you know, where you just kind of try to duplicate one-to-one the teachings of the book or the kind of cultural lessons from a book and you don't do the translation of, um, you don't do the translation of letting the text remain alive and remaining, letting it continue to kind of point at you. And so I, I, the thing, the thing that i would add to what we're talking about in conclusion after pushing my raft out into like the deep waters and not really knowing exactly where i was going is um
1: like odysseus yeah like
2: odysseus it, for me the the question of is there one true story always needs to be accompanied by and is there a community that preserves that story that understands that story right. and what is that what is that community doing to make sure that it is that its eyes are open and that its ears are open so that the story can remain alive to themselves and so that they can kind of like convey the truth of that story to others if at all possible
1: right agreed
0: okay three more questions i want to get through pretty quickly here so we can wrap up um Amy asks this question. She says, I'm obsessed with the idea of the story that Heidi mentioned. She thinks it was in the first episode in which Odysseus was given a choice among Helen, Clytemnestra, and Penelope. He chooses Penelope despite Helen's greater beauty because of her wisdom and virtue and avoids Clytemnestra because he senses her lack of wisdom. And Amy says that she's tried to research and find this but has not yet succeeded. So do either of you know where she can find more information on this sort of origin story? Heidi, where where would you point to for some more information on this?
1: Um, I don't know. In fact, my apologies uh to her because I meant to look this up and didn't. I forgot. So I wrote it down. I just jotting it down right now. So I'll I'll do that. I read it in a secondary source, not a primary source. So I read it in a book of myths, um, a children's book of myths that I have at my house. And so I don't know where the that, and That's obviously not the primary source, so <laughs> I'll have to do some digging myself. But I'll do that. Do you know Tim? Do you know where that comes from? I don't. Okay.
0: Is it? I thought it's referenced in um, the, um, the 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 plays, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it referenced in what, Is the? Is it in the
1: Theban plays and Sophocles?
2: That wouldn't surprise me if I was going to go on a chase for this. That's I would probably start mm-hmm. there
1: that's yep yep
0: what are the um what are the three plays again which one's the f- what's the order they go in i, I always forget do you remember tim Heidi? You...
1: for, for um, the, the three the Stephen plays, the plays. Um, yeah what is the order um, they go in it's oedipus, oedipus rex is first
2: for colonus and then antigone
1: antigone's last yep
2: it, by the way yeah. if this is a resting place um I have had a request from a friend and I I have since discovered that that my friend's request is um, she's not alone in requesting this. She would like to perform short, meaning like 30 minute plays based on Greek mythology. So she found a 30 minute edition of Antigone and she did it with her seventh and eighth graders. I posted on the Facebook page, Hey, if anybody has any sort of resources like this, I would love to have access to them. She would love to have access to them. And we've kind of turned up a goose egg. We haven't found much of anything. So this is a bigger shout out. If you have access to short approachable plays that would be appropriate for middle schoolers to act out based on the Greek myths or uh, the Greek, you know, dramatics, um, please post something to me on Facebook. That'd be really helpful.
0: Just to clarify, I meant the Oresteia, not the Theban place. Okay. Because I think it's referenced in the in, um, Agamemnon, the story of, um, of Clytemnestra killing Agamemnon and all
1: that. Well, that would make sense.
0: I think it's referenced there, but that, that I might be not remembering that correctly. Okay, um, two more questions. So Sally says, I finished the Odyssey and decided to read A Sea of Sorrow, which is a collection of short stories telling parts of the Odyssey from other perspectives. The Odyssey through the eyes of its fict- Shattered Victims. Uh, The first story has Penelope dealing with a 13-year-old Telemachus, and it got me thinking that she is not the only woman waiting for her husband to return, but she is the only one whose husband does return. And after the death of the suitors, two generations of men are missing from Ithaca. So what happens to Ithaca after the Odyssey is over? Who is left to rebuild? Heidi, do you want to touch on this?
1: Um, Yeah, I think that that's the cliffhanger at the end of the Odyssey, right? That's the question we're all supposed to be asking. You're asking exactly the right question. What happens next? Um, and Homer doesn't give us a satisfying answer for that. Uh, and, and I think throughout the Odyssey explores the problem of that. And that's some of the very deep irony, um, dramatic irony in this story is that there's, there is a very big problem after the war. And, um, there's a lot, a lot being written today, um, and, and this is one of those things I think that modern scholarship is getting right in studying Homer. Uh, there's a lot being written on Homer as uh, subversive, uh, subverting the warrior ideal in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I think that's an avenue worth exploring because there's so much in Homer that asks, the, in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, that asks the question is this worth it? Is the Greek warrior code worth the cost? Uh, on the individual and on the society. Uh, and and I do think that Homer is asking that question in the, in the Odyssey and the question that you're asking is exactly that.
0: Tim, do you want to address it? it?
2: I do think it's the cliffhanger. I think everything depends on what happens with the relatives of the slain suitors and the household of Odysseus, because we kind of have a duex machina solution where a God comes down, a goddess comes down and says, Hey, no more fighting. This is the end. And the book ends shortly after that. Um, But what, what, what is going to happen after that solution? Like can Ithaca kind of like become a whole community again after odysseus slaughters the suitors and his relatives want vengeance that's that is an absolutely live question so i'm just saying the same thing mm-hmm. that heidi said it's a cliffhanger we don't know if if there can be some sort of peace between the household of odysseus and the household of the suitor households of the suitors then if can move forward if not I, I don't know it doesn't take a lot of speculation for me to say well, there's going to be some. There's some sort of looming civil war there.
0: Yeah, to me, the whole point of the end of the book is that it's Telemachus is going to have to play a role in that, and the yeah. question is how prepared is he? I mean, like that's the moment of that's the question. The question of Stasis at the end of the book um, that has Telemachus grown up enough and changed enough. You know, going back to the Telemachy to to take on the mantle and take on the role that he's going to have to play, even with his father being back, he's still going to have to play a role in the near future and in the long term to preserve what Odysseus came back to fight for. Um, I think that's one of the, like, the really interesting questions about the end of the book. Um, okay. Last question. This is from Mary. This is a kind of a big picture question. And she says, what are the major ideas a person should glean for first time readers? And I, I gathered from the question that what, you know, we've talked about a lot of a lot of ideas over the last 12 weeks or whatever. Um, but if you had to narrow it down to say two things that you think first time readers should really pay attention to or should really um, should should glean you know maybe it's a first-time teacher or or younger students even you know kind of like where that what are the ideas that should that thinking about this book should be oriented around for for new for new people like it's a very difficult question but you know say I make you narrow it down to two things but anyway, this is what I want to do Heidi I want you to say one and then I want Tim to say one and then I want to go back and forth so that he can't just say yeah those are the two things that I would that I would say
1: Okay. So, so, oh, okay. Yeah, go ahead, so go ahead. I give one. You give one. Yeah. Okay. This, I, I, I would start with hospitality, the guest host relationship okay. and how it is explored from multiple perspectives throughout the, throughout the book.
0: Okay. Tim.
2: Hospitality. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, say that one now. <laughs> I would say the enigmatic, enigmatic, Nature of Odysseus's heroism, okay maybe maybe not enigmatic the the uh complicated he's a complicated <laughs> man, the complicated nature of odysseus's heroism okay
0: now I'm going to throw you and throw you a wrench in this, Tim. you go now, and then Heidi will finish it out. oh yo, yo
1: mind, I- and so I'm really curious if they're the two that are going to come up,
0: right so now. so far, we have the nature of hospitality. And the complicated nature of Odysseus's heroism. Yes. So Tim, what, what's the, what's another thing you're going to throw out there?
2: I, I would say, um, fidelity. Faithfulness is a theme. Mm.
0: Hospitality, heroism, fidelity. Heidi.
1: Uh, false and true homecomings. Mm. And then I have one more. Can I give one more or no?
2: I've
0: got one more. All also. right, you can either give <laughs> ourselves permission. Okay, Heidi, you go, <laughs> and then we'll go back around to Tim. We'll do a snake here.
1: Okay, uh, it is the um, the nature of fate and the intervention of the gods, a free will, agency, and fate. Mm.
0: Tim.
2: Okay, this is very specific, but I think first time teachers of the Odyssey should make sure that their students know the story of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra. Oh okay. So like just a just a 5 minute overview of that story. Perfect excuse me perfect world is you read um you read the play Agamemnon first. Like you let your students act it out. That's kind of the prologue for and then you start the Odyssey. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Well, okay. I thought you guys were going to resist on that question. I no,
1: <laughs> I, I've actually, what's funny is I'm about to teach the Odyssey. So I have these three thread or four threads, which are what we just stated. Mm. Um, and I'm also beginning work on a book on teaching great books to kids, which will have a whole chapter on teaching the Odyssey and teaching great books, using these anchoring threads that weave throughout the book. Mm. Mm. So it's like on my mind right now
0: okay all right so that's it guys that's like 12 13 weeks something like that on the odyssey i think the longest the longest series of episodes we've ever done on one book on this podcast in in just over four years now so boom
1: and we barely scratched the surface yeah i know that's the thing at the end of every episode i felt
0: really bad that we never got to what we really needed to talk about and then now we're at the end so maybe in like four years we'll come back and do it again Or we could do the Iliad, and I'm sure that will take us back into the odyssey as well. Anyway. So um, what's going to be happening next is Heidi and Tim are going to be discussing the Tempest over on the plays, the thing. So be on the lookout for that over the next few weeks, Tim, what is your, who's your favorite character on the Tempest? (laughs) I do not know that character. (laughs) Is it Hamlet? I don't know, David. I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. Heidi, what about you?
1: Prospero, easy.
0: All right. Well, the fact that you had an easy answer and he didn't have an easy answer there suggests that the <laughs> conversations, are going, be, right the conversations
1: yeah. are going to be conversations are going to be lively.
0: <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> what, what was the word we were saying earlier? Crackling. crackling. The conversations are going to be crackling,
1: crackling, and erudite. <laughs>
0: exactly. And then, of course, here on the you know Close Reads, the, the flagship Close Reads show where we discuss novels and occasionally the Odyssey, um, uh, Matt Bianco is going to be joining me to discuss uh, Lewis Auchincloss' Director of Justin along with our new contributor, Sarah Jane Bentley. And Sarah Jane actually teaches at an all-boys school, you know, that being Eton in England. And this is a book about an all-boys school. So we thought, you know her her debut appearance on Close Reads should be this book because it's going to be uh, pretty close to home for her. And Matt Bianco is obsessed with this book, and he punched me in the face repeatedly until I let him come on. So, um, that's that's what's going to be happening is Matt Bianco. Is and that
1: why you're veiled Sarah in Jane mystery? Jane
0: that's exactly yeah. Okay. I'm yeah exactly. So, uh, <laughs> by the way, when I say he punched me in the face repeatedly, I mean it metaphorically. But uh, yeah, we're going to be. I just want to make make it clear that Matt's not a violent person. Um, but we're going to be um, we're going to be doing that next. So we've got lots of great stuff coming up on all kinds of podcasts. Don't forget about Joshua Gibbs' new podcast, Proverbial, that is now available wherever you get podcasts. Uh, the Daily Poem. We have a podcast coming up about. Um, the Victorian era of English history. It's going to be called Victoria's World. And if you've ever heard a podcast called The History of Vikings, there's a young guy named Noah Tetzner, a college student, who is this really popular podcast called The History of Vikings. That's really good. And he's going to be taking us through 15 episodes on all kinds of different things in the history of uh, Victoria's England, Queen Victoria's England. So be on the lookout for Victoria's World later this month out from the Circe uh, Podcast Network. So there is a ton of great content available to you. Um, I know not everyone can listen to everything, but you know we wanted to make as many things available as possible. So thank you to Heidi and Tim for uh, bearing with me these, these uh, many moons at sea. It actually has been like multiple moons that we've been talking about this book. So True. thank you for uh, thank you for taking taking part in this, and uh, can't wait to listen to you guys talk about the Tempest. So thank you.
1: Thanks, David. Thanks, David.
0: For Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for reading. We will talk to you next week about the Tempest and about the Rector of Justin. In the meantime, happy reading.